1 John chapter 3. You're going to read the first three verses. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The title of the message is, What Manner of Love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege we have to open your precious word. We pray tonight as we look into the word of God that we'd be encouraged, strengthened, and realize and come to more understand the love that you have for us, for mankind. And I pray that you would just be helped and encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, John tells us that in First John, John chapter 4, that beloved, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You know, God is love. Now, the world has taken the word love and perverted it. But tonight, I want to give some things concerning the manner of the love of God. He says, God has bestowed this upon us. You know, God loves the whole world. He loves everyone. Not everybody responds to that love. However, that doesn't change the fact that he loves them. Uh the word bestow means to give as a gift or to confer upon. Uh, the man, word manner means of what sort or quality. So we're talking about the sort of love or the quality of the love of God. And I got seven things here tonight I want to share with you. First of all, this love of God is personal. It's personal. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. God's love to us is personal. He wants to have a personal relationship with each and every person. Uh, we know that is not the case because not everyone's a son of God. But God wants to have a love with us that is personal. personal. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in uh, Verses 17 and 18, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth under inspiration, and he's talking to them about uh, separating from the world and the things in the world. And, and then he says this in verses 17 and 18, Wherefore come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, he's saying, you know, writing here to the church at Corinth, the saints, the, you know, these, these are saved people who have a relationship with the Lord, but it wasn't a relationship that was what it, what God desired of them or intended for them because of the, the sin that was amongst them. 
And so Paul's instructing them, so you need to separate from the sin of the world that you can have a relationship like a father has with a son who's walking, where the two are walking in harmony together in agreement. You know, that speaks of a personal, a close relationship. Uh, in chapter 4 of 1 John, again it says in verse uh, uh, 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So, you know, we're talking about somebody that that dwells with God. You know, you're talking about somebody that walks in consistent fellowship with God, in agreement with God. You know, Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? You, you, you will, you'll be friends with or closer to people that agree with you than people that don't agree with you. You have a closer relationship with people that agree with you than people that don't agree with you. You know, I have closer relationship with many of you than I do with some members of my own family. Why? Because of the agreement we have. The things we agree on. Uh, so, so again here, God wants, God desires, you know, this, this love relationship is one that is, God desires is personal as a father and a son. Secondly, his love is everlasting. His love is everlasting. Uh, in Jeremiah 31.3, the Bible says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. You know, God is telling Israel, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations chapter 3, It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Great is his faithfulness. So the Lord loved Israel with an everlasting love, a love that will never cease. In John chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that it was hours come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Now, the phrase there, unto the end, doesn't mean until he was crucified or, or until Judas betrayed him or until Peter denied him. It's not what it means. It means he would never cease to love them. That's the idea. So God's love is an everlasting love. Your Proverbs tells us in chapter 8 that, that God's delights was with the sons of men. God has an everlasting love, a love that never ceases for mankind. You know, even, well, let's go to the third one. Third thing we see is that God's, the manner of God's love is universal. Look at verse 1 again. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now, just because the world does not know him does not mean he does not love them. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My children, these things write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. For us who are saved, he's, he was the propitiation. That word propitiation means he's the one that satisfied God's righteous, man, righteous demand 
on our behalf. He satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. He was our atonement, if you will. But it goes on and says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Christ didn't die just for us who believe. He died for everyone. Therefore, that means that he loved God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, so some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any man should perish, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, that included Judas and Pharaoh. The people destroyed in the flood. You know, none of these people None of these people were without witness to the truth and without opportunity to obey the truth. It's simply that they chose not to obey the truth or hear the truth. They chose not to respond to the love of God and come to him. We've seen a good example of this in Matthew chapter 23. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. <laughs> Excuse me, Matthew 23. <clears throat> Jesus is giving a pretty long address to the Pharisees. And I'm going to pick up at verse 30 of Matthew 23, where he says, And say, well, let's go back to verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we had not have been partakers with them, in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witness unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill. Now that's future tense. If I understand English right, that's future tense. You know who some of them were? James, Peter they put in jail, Paul they persecuted, tried to kill. And this is the, I believe this is who Jesus is referring to here when he says in verse 34, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues. Paul was bitten, or beaten with rods, uh, beaten the stripes 39 times. Uh, you know, and, and you shall scourge in your synagogues, persecute them from city to city. They, they followed him wherever he went. Verse 35, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. But notice verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. See, God's love is universal. It's to all mankind. There's none excluded. None excluded. Fourthly, God's love is all-encompassing. Notice again verse 2. 
Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. To encompass means to encircle or to surround, to enclose, to include comprehensively. Now, try to describe this that, you know, the love of God, you might say, is our banner. If we have a banner as Americans, what's our banner? What would be our, our, huh? Flag, okay? So really what we're saying here is love is our flag. Now, if we were to put that out here in the world, we'd, they, you know, the homosexual crowd puts up love as their flag and all this kind of stuff. You know, but that's a perverted, that's a perverted love. It's not true love. Um, but love is, the love of God is our banner. The Bible says God is love. It's part of his being. It's part of his being. And really, the love of God is, is like the lubricant that makes the Christian life work. Without love, you know, God is truth. God is holiness. Without love, that can be cold, harsh, and uncaring. You know, the love, love is no respecter of persons. It don't care about your, I'm sorry, not love. Truth is that without respecter of persons, it doesn't care about your feelings. You know, it, there's no feelings with truth. It's just the hard, blunt facts. But the Bible says how are we supposed to speak the truth? In love. And see, love is the lubricant that, that gives compassion and caring and concern to truth. Otherwise, truth and holiness would be cold, uncaring, and harsh. And so, you know, our love is encompassing in the fact that it's our banner, you might say. It's like an ensign or a, a, a motto or a slogan or a standard of, of, of the Christian life. In fact, Jesus said in Luke's, or not Luke, John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have truth one with another. No, he didn't say that, did he? No, he said if you have love one for another. Give a loved one for another. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4 says, He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me. His, his encompassing, comprehensive, uh, the, the thing that makes everything work is love. His banner over me is love. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. There's an interesting verse there where the Bible says this, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Love is what makes our faith work. Faith that works by love. And so the manner of God's love is encompassing. It, it's our banner, if you will. By this shall men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And so we see the love of God is personal, it's everlasting, it's universal, it's encompassing. Fifthly, it is measureless. Verse 1 again. Behold what manner of love 
Now the word manner again means of what sort or quality. So let me ask you a question. How do you define the love of God? Can you define it? Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul tried, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he tried to get them to comprehend God's love. In Ephesians 3, in verse 17, he says, well, let's go back to verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul just, Paul just tries to describe it here, and he says it's a, it's a love that passes knowledge. We're really comprehending. A complete comprehension is almost impossible for us about considering God's love. So how do you define it? You know, in Psalm, Psalm 139, in verses 1 through 18, the psalmist said, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsending and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Thou hast possessed me, my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance is not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. You know God knows your DNA. That's just talking about it. God knows your DNA. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in convenience were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. You see, you know, God's love is measureless. There's no place we can go to get away from the love of God. Or his presence. So how do you define it? Well, to my finite mind, the best I can describe God's love is Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans 5, 6 through 8, where he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how do you measure the love of God in human terms when God loves his enemies to the point where he even dies for them? His love is measureless. It's measureless. But then we see also, not only is his love everlasting, personal, universal, encompassing, measureless, but it's also restraining. It's also restraining. Look at 1 John again. And I'm going to read the first three verses again. Behold, what manner of love the Father has behold upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now, or it's right now, if you're born again right now, you are a son or a daughter of God. So now are we the sons of God. Doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Now, the love of Christ is restraining. Love has boundaries. Love sets boundaries. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Here he says, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So he tells us that you know, we are to be people that love but he said, we're not to love the world. He tells us, out of love, he tells us, don't love the world. So God's love is restraining. You see, love has boundaries for protection. To protect us. You know, a parent that loves their child sets boundaries. Not to prevent growth but to promote proper growth and to protect them. Let's look at a few examples of those who did not set boundaries. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. <clears throat> Eli, you know, Eli had a very privileged position. He was the high priest. He was, he's supposed to be a man that's close to God. And yet, his sons were wicked. And in 1 Samuel 2, verse 29, a, a man of God comes to Eli, and he says this in verse 29, Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Go to chapter 3 and verse 13. Why were his sons wicked? What, where, where would God lay the blame? Verse 13. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. 
You know what you, you know what we could rightly say? Eli did not have a godly love for his sons. Or he would have restrained his sons. He would have put them out of the priesthood. See, the Bible says he restrained them not. Go to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. <clears throat> First Kings chapter one. And verse five. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggiath, exalted himself. Now this is a this is the son of David. David's old, David's old, he's dying, and you know, he has already said that Solomon's supposed to be king in his room and so on, but he hasn't yet had Solomon anointed. And so this is another son of David, son of, of Haggath, that was evidently the, the mother's name. He exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared himself chariots and horsemen, and fifty men run before him. Now here's an interesting statement. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? You know that phrase there, his father had not displeased him. You know what that means? His father had never inflicted any pain on him. In other words, he had never chastised him with the rod. What you have here is a spoiled kid who thinks he can do whatever he wants. And he decides he wants to be king. When he already knows that his father had said, Solomon will follow me as king. He already knows that. But after all, his dad had never displeased him at any other time, never inflicted it, never corrected him before. So why now? You see, there's a problem here. You know, sometimes, sometimes God will tell you no. Because he loves you. Sometimes your parents will tell you no. Because they love you. Because they love you. That doesn't change the fact that you're still God's child. Or you're still a child of your parents. In fact, it proves you are his child. It proves. I don't tell other kids that are not mine, rarely tell them no. I don't correct other people's kids. Unless they're put under my responsibility for some reason or other. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's, that's not, they're not my responsibility. But God will tell his children no. God will restrain. He does restrain us. He has boundaries. He puts boundaries not not to prevent growth, but to promote proper growth. Proper growth. So God's love is restraining. You know, we, we, we say this, that God's love is unconditional, and we almost give the, the idea there that, that then it really doesn't matter we're accepted and doesn't matter what we do. Yes, it does matter what we do. We are accepted, but there are things that God desires from us as his children, as any parent expects obedience from their child. 
and puts boundaries in a child's life for their good, for their protection. And so God's love is restraining. It's also, number seven, it's also constraining. Notice verse three again. It says, 1 John 3, 3, And every man that hath this hope in him. Of course, we're talking about the appearance of the Lord and are going to be with him uh, and dwelling with him. But every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So if we have the love of God dwelling in us and the hope of being with him, desire to be with him, it constrains us or compels us to grow, to change. Uh, look at Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. You know, this is the, this is, this is the reason God has given us His Word. You know, He could have, He could have just told us about salvation and not given us all this other instruction that is given us in the Bible. No, He's given us all this other instruction so that we might become more like Him. We might become more pleasing to Him. We are accepted. We already know that. But God desires that we be more pleasing to Him. That we mature and grow in our Christian walk. Second Corinthians 5 verse 14 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because he once judged, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that we, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So the love of Christ constrains us. That word constrains means it compels, or it's, 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 it's a driving force to to become more and more like Christ. It's a compelling force. Love is a great motivator. It draws us out. You know, every parent wants their child to grow, to mature. I know, Callan's so cute. But I don't think Nathan wants him to stay that size. I think he wants him to grow and mature. And his mother as well. You know, they want him to grow up. And even as a grandpa, I want him to see him grow and mature. And that's what God desires of us. Uh, look at 1 John chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 John chapter 4 and verses 15 through 17. 1 John 4 verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Okay, so there's, there's salvation. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God and, you know, we believe in Christ as a Son of God and our Savior and Lord. So we, that's salvation. And then it says, and we have known and believe that love that God hath to us, God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein, so as we dwell with God, as we walk with God, we become more like God, we grow in our faith and be more conformed to his image, we dwell with him, and herein is our love made perfect or mature. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So God not only desires to save us, but he don't want us just to stay in that condition. 
He wants us to grow. Just as we desire, as parents, we desire our children to grow and mature, God desires us as his children to grow in our Christian life. In his book, God's Love, Better Than Unconditional, David Pallison said this, talking about unconditional versus God's kind of love. He said, if you receive blanket acceptance, I read this quote, if you receive blanket acceptance, you need no repentance. You just accept it. It fills you without humbling you. It relaxes you without upsetting you about yourself or thrilling you about Christ. It lets you relax without reckoning with the anguish of Jesus on the cross. It is easy and undemanding. It does not insist on or work at changing you. It deceives you about both God and yourself. Unquote. You know, that's what a lot of people want out of Christianity. They want a salvation that they don't have to change. They can just stay the same way they are. And that's what Jesus is referring to, really, in John chapter 6, when he said, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. And some said, this is a hard saying. And he said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And he's talking about dying to self. Really, that's the kind of the idea. And it says, many of his disciples went away and walked no more with him. Oh, oh wait a minute. We didn't, we didn't want this part. But that's not the love of God. God, God saves us as we are. We come to him in repentance. And then he wants to work in our lives to make us conform to his image that we might glorify him. He goes on and says, we can do better. God does not accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. He loves me just as Jesus is. He loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. This love is much, much, much better than unconditional. Perhaps we would call it contra-conditional. I don't even know if that's a word. Contra-conditional love. God has blessed me because his son fulfilled the conditions I could never achieve. Contrary to what I deserve, he loves me, and now I can begin to change, not because I can earn his love, but because I have already received it. Unquote. You see, God's love is constraining, and it's also restraining. God wants us to grow. His intention, you know, he hasn't, his love has intentions for us. And we have to understand that God's intentions are always good. Good for us. Good for us. God wants us to grow in our walk with the Lord, to grow in our love one for another and in our love for a lost and dying world. Those are good things. You see, this is the love that God has. Yes, he accepts us in the beloved, but his desire is that we grow and be more and more conformed to the image of his son. That's why we assemble together. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And 
Verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. What for? For the perfecting, we might say the maturing or the growth of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edify, the word edifying means to build up. So we're talking about maturing, building your life. Those are good things. Edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, or a fully grown up, mature man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to see. You know, how many people are so easily led astray by the false teachings of the world? Look at the world. You know, we, we often say, how can they believe such lies? It's quite simple. They're children of the devil, and they're blinded. We're children of light. God calls us children of light. And God wants us, God has enlightened our minds by his Holy Spirit, and he wants us to grow in our Christian, Christian walk. And one of those reasons he wants us to grow is so that we aren't led astray easily by false teachers. That we'll walk in the truth. Uh, verse six, 15. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You know, he compares this to really to a building. And if you're going to have a good building, you want every joint to fit together properly. You want quality materials. It all speaks of of perfecting, maturing growth uh, again in our, in our spiritually that we would be uh, strong in the Lord in the power of his might. You see, this is the manner of love that God has for us. Yes, he accepts us as sinners. We're saved by grace, but he has intentions for us. He desires that we grow. And so his love is restraining and it's constraining. It compels us or draws us to himself. And so, uh, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. You know, we have a God that loves us with an everlasting love. And we need to allow Him to work in our lives. Allow Him to restrain us for our protection, for our proper growth, and then compel us to do what is right and pleasing. That we might be found faithful. And that we might have joy in our life as we heard about this morning as well.